0: Friends, if you have your Bible, open it to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We are going to cover an amazing passage today. Uh, If you're like me, you love God's word. There are passages that are favorites that have spoken to you and you have been blessed by them so much. This morning's passage for me is just such a passage. Now the theme of Peter, as we point out today, is that we are sojourners, we are exiles in this world. A world that you were born into all of those years ago, and you were a member of the world. You were a card-carrying member of humanity, fallen, broken, humanity. You came by your sinner status naturally, for you were born as a child, a grandchild of sinners going all the way back in your family tree to Adam and Eve. We are a fallen and helpless race. But by the grace of God, God's great plan of salvation, he sent his son to be fully God, yet fully human. He lived a perfect life. He took your sin and my sin upon Himself and paid the penalty for that sin as He died for us on the cross. Through faith in Jesus, we too have been forgiven and live a new life in Him. No longer do we belong to that broken, sinful tribe of fallen humanity. You've been adopted into the very family of God. You're co-heirs with Jesus. What a blessing that is. And remember, Peter writing to Christians scattered through five Roman provinces on that northern side along the Black Sea of the modern-day Turkey, that peninsula. Peter writes to them, and they're undergoing various levels of struggle, trial, and persecution. Peter wants to encourage them. And so he spends the whole chapter writing to them about the fact that no matter how bleak your outlook looks, you have in Christ living hope. And that hope is the result of the wonderful salvation, the riches of it, that you have in Jesus. But the fact is, you no longer belong to this world. You're in the world, but not of the world. You're not putting down roots. You're just passing through, or at least that's how it should be. That is what our attitude should be. And this message, I hope today just encourages us to see it that way. The Roman world was very different than ours. In some ways, it was just the same. People are people, no matter the time, no matter the place. Our human hearts are the same. We have the same hopes and fears and dreams and struggles. But some things change drastically. Technology. We can't imagine living at that level of technology, the lack of medicine and so forth that the Roman Empire lived under. Also changes socially. There was an institution in the Roman world that we talk about today as if it's in the distant past, though we know in many parts of the world that it still exists. And the Romans didn't see any problem with it. And that was the institution of slavery. I have a graphic of people who are slaves, and that's actually Roman manacles in a museum in Germany. Slavery in the Roman world. Were there abolitionists? Did you hear people uh, parading out front of their temples with signs protesting the institution of slavery? Not at all. It never happened. There were some revolts against it by the slaves themselves, but the rest of society saw no problem with slavery. You have to understand that. It was accepted. It was part of life that people could be owned as property by other people. In fact, there are wildly different estimates of how many slaves there actually were in the Roman Empire during the lifetime of Jesus and the apostles. Some people say it's as many as tens of millions of people in the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean Sea were slaves. We know that in the city of Rome itself, somewhere between one and a half to three million residents were slaves. Every other person you would meet on the street was a slave. And slaves came in all areas of society. The lowest, most harsh conditions were those slaves that toiled in the mines. They were seen basically like beasts of burden like machinery to dig out the ore of the gold and the precious metals and the tin and the copper. Their lives were hard and short. They didn't live very long. Or you could be a slave owned by a rich Roman patrician. You could work in their household, be seen part of the extended family, and have a wonderful, comfortable life. You could be highly educated. In fact, you know who taught the Roman children? Especially the children of the elite. Slaves, They were educated slaves, especially brought from Greece to teach philosophy and mathematics. And that was their job in the household. They were the tutors of the children. People just didn't see a problem with it. That's how it always had been. It wasn't until the church of Jesus Christ came on the scene. The people began to understand that all of us are created in the image of God. And that is it is morally wrong to think you can own another person. In fact, even in that day they longed for freedom. The people who weren't slaves saw no problem with it. Obviously slaves saw things very differently. Not everybody was born a slave. You could become a slave by defaulting on your debt. You could declare bankruptcy. In those days, your creditors owned you. You became a slave through debt. Most slaves early in the empire's day were captured. They were foreign nationals captured in war and they became slaves of the Romans. That was the vast majority. But in later times, they just needed slaves to work the field so they would go to slave markets and buy people who weren't slaves by birth. They'd been captured by pirates along the Cilician coast of the Mediterranean and sold to the Romans as cheap labor. Oh, these slaves, they, they long for freedom. In fact, 70 years before Jesus, a famous slave, the most famous Roman slave of all, he was in a gladiator training camp in Capua, Italy. His name was Spartacus. And he and his fellow gladiators in training overthrew their masters, took their lives, and they took to the fields, it was 6,000 freed slaves, many of them trained fighters. They defeated Roman soldiers in battle. For two years, that slave army rampaged across central Italy until finally the Roman general Crassus met them and brought the iron boot of Rome down on the slaves. It must have been a terrible sight. as a lesson to all slaves, the road between Rome and Capua, the famous Via Appia, they crucified all 6,000 of Spartacus' followers and lined them along that road as a lesson. How to get free? Freedom from slavery. Well, sometimes the masters, in their will, would free their slaves, their faithful servants. Sometimes a price could be paid. In the Roman courts, it was called manumission where a redemption price was paid and you could be free. A freedman. And a freedman eventually could become a freeman and he could eventually even become a Roman citizen. Oh, they dreamed of it. The most precious concept to the slaves of the Roman Empire was redemption. To be redeemed. So, friends, when we read this passage that talks about our redemption, we think of it as a theological term. Yeah, it's one of those sanctification, redemption, one of those shun words. I'm not sure what it means. Oh, the Romans did. Peter's hearers did. Because the church, the good news of the gospel that you were free From slavery of sin in Christ, you can see how that would resonate among the enormous slave population of Rome. And so much of the early church were slaves. They may have been in bondage physically, but God set them free spiritually. They were free indeed. Redemption was precious to them. And it should be precious to you and I who are to live our lives as exiles, strangers, and sojourners in this world. Precious redemption. Well, as we're in the first chapter of Peter, we're down to the 13th verse of 1 Peter chapter 1. First, we'll look at the fact that Peter reveals a bit about the hearts and the minds of the redeemed. The hearts and minds of the redeemed. How we are different as redeemed, that is, freed from the slavery of sin by the price Jesus paid. We're the redeemed. We're the freed slaves. And our hearts and minds are different now. They're different. And that word different is important. We'll look at it in just a moment. Let's read those three verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13-16. to 16. Therefore, Peter is connecting this to what went before. He's been talking about your great salvation, the fact that you're wonderfully saved. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had, When you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Peter's quoting the Bible of the New Testament church, which is the Old Testament. Recall that at this time, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. Peter's quoting from the book of Leviticus. Now, in time, they begin to see God's Holy Spirit speaking to them through the writings, the collected letters to the churches of the Apostle Paul, the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And soon they begin to see those as equally the Word of God with the Old Testament. But when Peter quotes the Bible, it's the Old Testament Be holy as I am holy. God tells the children of Israel and people of faith even today there. The hearts and minds of the redeemed. First thing I want to point out is Peter says something amazingly interesting in the Greek, at least not in the new international version. I've talked in the past that uh, this is the most printed long ago. It passed the King James as the most uh, printed version of the Bible in English for Centuries, it was the King James Version, but now it's the New International Version, which is not, as most ver- uh, translations aren't, it's not a literal translation of the Greek, because the Greek, the word order, it's just, would make very little sense to us to be overly literal. It's called a dynamic equivalency, where they translate not always word for word, but often what the words mean, thought for thought. At least that's the theory. But here's one of them that's just interesting. It says in verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Clear the decks. Prepare for action. Where literally, I read this in the Greek as I always do in preparing the message. I go through the, the Greek verses and look at the words. And this is literally gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> gird up your loins gird the loins of your mind now thinking about that i'm thinking what in the world prepare for action this is this is something they were very familiar with i have a kind of a comical cartoon of people girding up their loins look at the man on the top left corner that is how they dressed their robes went down to the ground but you couldn't work dressed like that But easily, they pulled the robe up, pulled it through their legs, wrapped it back around their legs, and tied it in front, and your robe became working pants. They would do that. Or, if you were in a hurry, you would take your robe and tuck it into your belt and leave your lower legs free. Or, like Peter, as we see in the Gospels, he would take off that outer robe altogether and wear the shorter tunic underneath as his working clothes. You had to do it. And we have. And an amazingly similar metaphor. Think about it. If you want to get to work, you say, "Okay, boys, let's roll up our sleeves. You could have translated and maybe the living Bible has translated it. Roll up your sleeves. Get ready to work. That's what this is saying. But it's talking about your mind. Prepare your minds for action to go to work. Be ready to move as God directs. In fact, to gird up your loins, to prepare for action, to wrap your robe and put it in your belt. This is found, for instance, in the Passover account. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, tells us how to eat the Passover. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The night, the Angel of Death goes through egypt god 's people they partake of the Passover Lamb. The blood is applied to the lintel and the doorpost, and they are ready to escape bondage they 're ready to go their traveling clothes are on this is what this is what god 's Word is telling us it 's like those racers. In the Summer Olympics or in track and field, I love the fact they come out and they are dressed warm and bulky. They always have insulated track suits on, even in the hottest weather, because they have warmed up and they're keeping their sprinting muscles warm. And the first thing they do, there's a bin, a plastic bin by the starting blocks, and they zip, zip, zip. They take off everything that'll slow them down. They're ready to go. They're rolled up and ready to go into action. This is spiritually what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us as well. Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's the people of faith from Hebrews chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Now that's telling you to travel light as a sojourner and stranger in the world. Get rid of those sinful habits, those addictions, those things that will hold you back in your walk with Jesus. But it also says, sin and anything else that easily entangles us. That's just too many ties that bind commitments to things that are not of God. They might not be in and of themselves sinful, but they will take up too much time. They will hold you back. In living the life that God has for you. That abundant life. Travel light. Peter also says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Again, Romans chapter 12 says, How not to be pressed into the world's mold and conform to this world? Paul says in a familiar passage in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will, His good and pleasing and perfect will. You'll be able to know God's will. You know it through His revealed word, the Bible. Are you in your Bible? <laughs> it's nothing new for us to be distracted. One of my favorite ancient preachers was was John Chrysostom for a long time. He was a preacher at the Hagia Sophia, the great church there in Constantinople. He was such an amazing expositor of God's Word. He was preaching in the smaller town. He was out in one of the one of the three hills or trochus of the empire and the and the the emperor of the Byzantine Empire, who was the Roman emperor, wanted him to pastor and preach at his church. No, he didn't want to come. So they sent the army and captured him and brought him under arrest to the capital. So when that boy got up in the pulpit, he didn't hold back. Let me tell you, be you emperor or slave, he would tell you the truth. And he once said, because from that church, you could hear the great hippodrome. You could hear the horse races, which was the mania. It was the NFL, the NHL, and all the other L's of the sports world rolled together. Everyone in Rome cheered on the horse races. In fact, the people in that society talk about team pride. They cheered. They had a certain group of racers we're part of the green team, part we're under the white team, part we're under the blue team. They went to war with one another. There was civil war and strife and bloodshed and killings between the fans of those horse races. And John Chrysostom says, what a waste of time. He says, you can name every one of the drivers of the chariots in the hippodrome. And you can tell me how many wins and losses they have this year. And you can tell me the names of their horses. And you can tell me who the sire of their horse was. And you can tell me so much. But you can't tell me the names of the twelve apostles. <laughs> You're wasting so much time. This life is short. Chrysostom means golden throat. And he was an amazing man, but he told us the truth. Sometimes we need to lay aside those things which bind and travel lighter. Now, this passage puts the fear into us because it says, it says, what does the Lord say? He says, but just as you are the one who called you as holy, so be holy in all you do for it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's where we begin to despair. We don't see ourselves as holy, though Scripture calls you as a child of God, the Hagioi, the Holy Ones, translated the saints. But you read Hagios, the Greek word means sanctified. That is taken by God and set apart for His use. You're sacred to Him. Remember the great sin of Belshazzar, the last of the Babylonian emperors? He took the sacred vessels which were only to be used in the temple of God in Jerusalem. They'd been captured, golden vessels, and he used them for a drunken feast in Babylon. And that very night, he died at the hands of Darius the Mede. God does not take lightly when those things which are sacred to him are used for secular purposes. In fact, Scripture doesn't recognize a divide in your life between sacred and secular, that you're one way on Sunday and you're a completely different way of life the rest of the week. All of our lives belong to God. We belong to Him. As sojourners, you are different. That's a word that describes the biblical word holy. We are different. We're set apart for God. When it speaks of character... Regarding God, it's complete perfection. When it speaks of you as a child of God, it's one who is progressing to be more like God, growing in moral character and perfection. We're on the way. Now you look at that and you say, growing in holiness, eww, that doesn't seem very pleasant. That doesn't seem like the abundant life that that's very attractive, does it? Because we have a very... Twisted view of holiness. Somehow it's unpleasant. It's legalistic. It, it's, it's just not, not fun. Let's be honest. Oh boy. It's like the kids who they never get to play. They're, they they got to go to church 24-7. You'd say, oh boy, poor child. But that's not holiness at all. Holiness is becoming more like Jesus. Who... Loved life. Jesus. Who did people want to be with? They wanted to be with Jesus. They loved to be with Him. The lowest person felt loved and accepted, encouraged and built up. Because they were with Jesus. And how does Scripture say that you are to be sanctified, become more holy, more like Jesus... Is it to get a rule book and try to follow your rules and be very judgmental and sour and angry all the time? No. The Bible says the process is about love. To grow in holiness is to grow in the love of God. And friend, when you get your heart and mind around this, it's transformative. It changes everything. One of the verses that our cluster of verses that speak of this is found in 1 John chapter four. John writes a lot about the mark, the hallmark of a true Christian to know you're genuine is love, which he says is the holiness speak beginning in the middle of the verse i 'll pick it up. God is love. whoever lives. John is speaking of holiness, of sanctification. The perfection, which is Jesus, that we want to grow to resemble Him more and more day by day. Peter says, as obedient children, there needs to be a family resemblance between you and your Father in heaven. And that resemblance is your heart. Your minds are transformed, but so is your heart. You love as Jesus loved. More and more, day by day. You're made perfect in love. God says, be holy as I am holy. There needs to be a family resemblance. Grow more and more like Jesus day by day. And that is most apparent that the process he uses in that is to grow you in love. Oh, it's not unpleasant. It makes life worth the living. And, And and in that passage, John says something, he says he talks about judgment day, that your growth in love to become more like Jesus is going to be assessed one day that God as a wonderful, perfect father, he will judge his children and he's impartial. He's not a father who plays favorites. He doesn't spoil his children Let's look briefly then at the God-pleasing lives of the redeemed. The lives that we live that please our Father and will be rewarded on judgment day. For we will all stand before the Lord one day. Peter makes this clear in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially... Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, the fear of the Lord is literally what the passage says. And we know that fear is not, as John says, perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And God's children, as we're judged, aren't facing punishment. Jesus took our punishment. All of our sin was paid for on the cross as Jesus Took our place. This, as the passage interprets, is reverential fear. It's the reverence a child has for their father. Their fear is that they will disappoint their father or that they will sin against his love. It's the fear that would keep one son at home while the prodigal didn't have that fear and went off and ruined his life and sinned against his father's love. Oh, we fear that. We never want to hurt God's heart because He loves us so. The picture I've chosen for that verse is Moses in the burning bush. That's reverential fear. He's in the presence of God. Take off your sandals, Moses, for even the very ground you stand on is holy ground. Hmm. Year by year, you see less reverence for God. Even among the church, people are flippant, disrespectful. Don't take anything serious because our society takes nothing serious. We're a silly bunch of people. But in the Old Testament, and even among some Jews today, they will not even say the name God, lest they take God's name in vain. There's a reverence there that I find we often lack. Peter says... Live your lives in reverence. The fear of the Lord, fearing against, sinning against the love and the grace of God as strangers in reverent fear. It says that our judgment will be of the works and things we do. And that shouldn't surprise us because passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, for we are God's workmanship, you and I. God made us through salvation. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved by works. We're saved to accomplish God's loving work in this world. And our judgment will be the family judgment. It's the judgment seat of Christ, referenced in Greek as the bema, the bema's house should be pronounced. The Bema was the judgment lectern, the podium that Roman magistrates would stand on. This is a very particular judgment. It's not the great white throne judgment that we see in the book of Revelation as the living and the dead are judged in accordance with whether their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But this is where the family of God, the kids come together and we are rewarded on how we showed this world Jesus. It's a judgment, not for condemnation, but it's a judgment to be rewarded. We find that passage, in, that mentioned particularly in a couple passages. One of the best is Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Well, people read that and sometimes they say, Oh no, I'm going to get a whooping for the bad things in this life. What the verse actually says is that you will not be rewarded for those things. God is sifting the chaff out of the wheat. He wants to reward you. He wants to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He wants to point out those times where you even gave a cup of cold water with the love of Jesus. Nothing escapes His gaze. He so desires to reward His children. This is made clear in Paul's earlier letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 tells us this. Therefore... Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. You notice what God is judging for? How he can reward you. You will receive your praise from God. Unfortunately, the Bible says many of us, though we know Christ as our savior, we waste this life. And it says those people, though they will be saved, Paul writes, it'll be like them escaping from a house on fire. They will have no jewels in their crown. They will just be there. (laughs) There'll be very little for God to reward them. So much of their life would have been lived for themselves. That's not people who are sanctified, who grow in the love of Jesus and live their lives and spend their lives on behalf of others. This is what the Lord wants to judge us for reward. He wants to see his children succeed. You know, obedience, it will have praise, rightful praise on that day from our Father, the one whom we want to live our lives to put a smile on. On his face. Years of obedience, though, doesn't get you a pass on an hour of sin. God doesn't show favorites, He sees everything for what it is. The worst thing you can do as a parent is to be permissive, to wink at the sins of your children, or even tell them it's okay. God doesn't do that. When God's children are going down the wrong track, A loving parent corrects. Scripture says God lovingly disciplines us because he does love us. An undisciplined, uncorrected child is an unloved child. Well, what is our motive, the greatest motive of all, for living a life of love and spending it for others? It's the love that Jesus showed us on the cross, the high price paid. For the redeemed. When I behold the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my greatest gain I count as loss, I pour contempt on all my pride. The sacrifice of Jesus. John chapter 13 begins with the phrase, it was at this time that Jesus showed them the full extent of His love. He'd saved them from storms on the Sea of Galilee. He'd fed them with a little boy's lunch. He'd healed the sick. He'd cast out demons. But it was when He went to the cross and died for your sins and took your place that He showed you the full extent extent of his love the high price paid for redemption the romans understood this they say oh if only we had the price to pay if only we could pay the high price for our freedom who would do this for us and then to find out that god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die in your place That He valued you lost in your sin that much. That if you were the only sinner in this hurting world that needed a Savior, He would go to the cross for you. That as He hung there that Friday and died, He knew you. And He was there for you. And it was His love for you, not those nails, that kept Him on the cross. Peter tells us that what we need to live a godly life is to often reflect on our redemption. The price that Jesus paid. The Apostle Paul's in full agreement with Peter. He tells the Corinthian church, he says, as often as you do it, hold communion. Share the Lord's Supper. Remember His body and His blood shed for you. His great love. It'll keep us on the right track. It'll remind us how much we're loved. How much we were valued. And what Jesus did for us. Peter shares one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. In verses 18 and 19. He says, For you know, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The Passover lamb. All the sacrificial system led up to this, that we would understand Jesus' sacrifice for us. His substitutionary atonement as He paid the penalty for our sin. For the wages of sin is death. Jesus' death on the cross was for us, but it was also for you. See that death. Understand it. That it was not with perishable things as gold or silver. Nothing in this world could pay for your sin. Gold and silver could buy the freedom physically for a Roman slave, but it couldn't buy your freedom from sin and death. Only the high price of Jesus' death for us could do that. That substitution was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in the powerful passages of the servant song, Isaiah 53. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Thank you, Jesus. Peter says, as you reflect upon the death of Jesus, know that it wasn't an accident. From a human perspective, it was an unjust, brutal murder of an innocent man. But it wasn't an accident from God's perspective. It was an appointment. That before the foundation of the world, Peter says, God knew what it would take to save you one day. And knew that Jesus would be obedient to the cross. Peter continues, and we finish today looking at those last two verses. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. It was an appointment long, long ago. You were in God's heart. Before the world was formed, his love for you was there. His foreknowledge, his understanding of what it would take for you to one day be part of the family of God. God knew. Peter says exactly this in, of all places, his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Reflect back, Acts chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus, who many of them had witnessed His death on the cross, many of them who had praised Him, Hosanna, on Palm Sunday, cried out, crucify Him on Good Friday. Short days later. Peter doesn't let them off the hook. Though he says this was in God's will. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put Him to death by nailing Him to the cross. But God raised Him from the dead, freeing Him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Him. Peter says it was God's set purpose. The Jesus kept his appointment. Though he struggled with the weight of it in the Garden of Gethsemane, oh, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. But his decision was not my will, but your will be done. Friends, reflect often on this. Before the silliness and the emptiness of the old way of life gets its hands on you again, when Peter says, Jesus redeemed you from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, he was writing to Jews and Gentiles. What does that mean? The empty way of life of Gentiles, oh, we understand that. Idolaters, pagan temples, temple prostitutes, superstition, darkness, ignorance. Greek philosophy that thought was wisdom, but in God's eyes was foolishness. But what of the Jews? An equally empty way of life is religion just going through the motions, following the rules, looking good outwardly. But as Jesus said, inside, you religious Pharisees, you look white on the outside like a whitewashed tomb, but inside you're dead. You're full of dead men's bones. That's an empty way of life, too. Empty legalism, empty religiosity. God, deliver us from both of these extremes. Let us reflect on that. Years ago, years ago there was a young, a young woman. She never grew old. She died at 42. She never married. She grew up in a pastor's parsonage in the 1800s. She had a wonderful heart. As Wally shared a poem, she was a poet by nature. And she wrote poems that became hymns. (laughs) One of my favorite hymns was written by her. Take my life and let it be. What a wonderful hymn, consecrating ourselves to the use of God. Her name was Frances Ridley Havergill. I have a picture of her here. She was at church once and she saw one of those devotional paintings on the wall that we all know, like Jesus knocking at the door, open the door and let him in. This picture was a painting of Jesus hanging on the cross. And the subscription, right at the bottom, there was a little inscription that said, I gave my life for thee. What will you give to me? He got her thinking. She went home, and she dashed out a poem, but she didn't like it. She crumpled it up, she threw it in the fire and the open hearth, and she left the room. Her wise old father, the pastor, was sitting there, and he watched the poem as it landed on the logs that were burning. The poem didn't instantly combust in fact, the heat from the fire had picked up the paper and threw it back out of the fireplace. <laughs> He was curious what got rejected by the fire. He walked over and he picked it up and he opened it up. And those are the words he read. He gave them back to his daughter, Francis. And he says, this spoke to me. I think it'll speak to others too. (laughs) I gave my life for thee, the precious hymn of the faith. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed that Thou might ransom be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for Thee. What hast Thou given for me? I gave, I gave my life for Thee. What hast Thou given for me? Let's pray. As we pray, the worship team will join us on the platform. Heavenly Father, Lord, the words of Peter, inspired by your Holy Spirit, Lord, they ring in our hearts and our minds. We are the redeemed, set free from sin and death by the price of redemption paid on the cross. Lord, turn our eyes to Jesus often, whether it be at the communion table as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Our Lord, may it be daily as we reflect on the fact that Though we have been set free, Jesus paid the price. He gave His life for us, and Lord, may we in turn show this world His love. May we grow in grace and become your set-apart people in holiness as we become more like Jesus day by day through the process of spending our life in love for others. Lord, this is, this is powerful but we need your help to do it. It's so easy to slip back to that empty way of life we were saved out of. Lord, today and for all of our tomorrows, by your grace, we want to live for you a life of living hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.